Welcome to the Cascadian Prophets Podcast, a production of the Cascadia Poetics Lab, empowering people to practice poetry and deepen connections to place, self, and the present moment. Why are only 8% of Hollywood movies produced by women, down from 9% 20 years ago? One Hollywood filmmaker says the male gaze, reinforced by a camera angle formula and a subject-object dynamic, creates an industry rife with employment discrimination and sexual abuse and assault. That filmmaker is Nina Menkes, the producer and director of Brainwashed Sex Camera Power, the movie showing now in select theaters. It's both disturbing and compelling, as well as uplifting. Called Brilliant, one of the most provocative artists in film today by the LA Times and a cinematic sorceress by the New York Times, Menkes films synthesize inner dream worlds with brutal outer realities. Her work has shown widely in major international film festivals, including Sundance, the Berlinale, and Toronto and New York film festivals. Nina, it is a pleasure and an honor to chat with you today. I'm excited to be here. Thank you, Paul. That's excellent. Tell us about the seed of this movie. Is it not a lecture that you've been giving about the same subject matter? Um, the way that this movie came about was it was kind of a long process with an explosive end. Um, I am, as you mentioned, a filmmaker. Uh, I made my first film, which was on 16 millimeter for $5,000 at the UCLA Film School. Um, it's called Magdalena Viraga. There's a film clip of it in Brainwashed. And I won a Los Angeles Film Critics Award and it went to 40 international film festivals. It went everywhere. So I sort of thought like, okay, now Hollywood's gonna come calling. They're gonna give me some money. I mean, I proved myself, um, but I couldn't, as they say, couldn't get arrested. Um, and it turned out later, you know, this was not because my nose is the wrong shape or I don't know what, but it turns out it's because I'm a woman and every other woman that I know had the same kind of unbelievable struggle. So um, because I couldn't get a budget in Hollywood, I started teaching as a way to pay my rent. And I started teaching at the USC Film School, later at California Institute of the Arts. And as part of my teaching, I... Um, developed a, a lecture with about 10 to 12 film clips to show my students, my production students, to show them sort of uh, in, in, in a kind of easy to understand way how shot design is different for male actors and female actors, you know, which I, I came to say shot design is gendered, you know, it's you, you, it's, and it's so normalized that we don't see it unless unless somebody points it out. Okay, so I had this lecture that was really designed for film students in a classroom, and I never thought of it being anything more than that. When Harvey Weinstein's story hit in the New York Times in 2017 and the Me Too movement exploded, I wrote a essay for Filmmaker Magazine tying the visual language of cinema to the epidemic of sexual assault, sexual abuse that was epitomized by the Weinstein story and that was also connected to employment discrimination. This is the triangle that ended up forming the 
basis of the film. But at that point, it was just an essay. And we thought maybe 30 people would read the essay. <laughs> and much to my shock and the editor of Filmmaker Magazine's shock, this article went viral. It became their most popular article of the year. I started getting invited all around the world to give my talk. Everywhere I gave my talk, people came up to me and said, you got to make this into a movie. It's, it should be seen all around the world. So that was how the film started. And so the, the actual film has almost 200 film clips. So the lecture had like 12 film clips. So it's much, much more in-depth, uh, many more film clips. And there's also interviews with 23 remarkable women. Yeah. In the movie, Brainwashed, you make the case with almost a litigious zeal. And I'd like to know, I, I mean, the, the case is made so powerfully in so many different ways. We get it. I felt sickened in parts of it. Sickened, why? Because I feel like I've been brainwashed to, tra yeah. to treat uh, women like pieces of meat. I think of that, uh, you know, th that graphic at the butcher shop with the different cuts. I mean, it's yeah. very similar, similar <laughs> with, with Hollywood, is it not? So, yeah. so that litigious zeal, that comprehensive argument to what do you attribute? Is that part of how you work? You just make sure you're going to nail it or what? <laughs> well, thank you for saying that. I love that. Um, I, uh, I do sort of make my case in the film uh, with litigious zeal. I, I love that phrase. I haven't heard anyone say it, but it's absolutely right. I'm like a prosecutor and I'm going out to make my case and I make my case and I win my case, um, you know, and I think there was somebody, uh, I can't, I'm not sure I remember the name of uh, one reviewer back back in Sundance um, when, it, when the film came out said something like, um, you know, Nina Mankis notably does not present a counter argument because there isn't one. <laughs> and I'm like, you, that is correct. There isn't one, you cannot argue with these facts that are that are shown they're put in front of your face and you can't argue with it the thing is is that that no one has put them in front of your face before quite like this and so some people get all bent out of shape <laughs> and you know but the truth is that there is no counter argument and um you know you can't say no 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 that's not true Right. Because it is true and we proved it. I'm almost reminded of the, you know, the, the equivalent in the media today. We have one side who says, you know, we need to respect elections and respect women's right. And another that says the election was a lie. <laughs> you know? I mean, exactly it's exactly yeah, right. Hard, yeah, it's hard to talk about two sides when in situations like that. Talk about the thesis, the male gaze and the camera angles used in Hollywood, you say, seem like a law which treats women like objects. It sets the foundation for a range of discrimination that puts the film industry a little bit behind the coal mining industry in employment yeah. discrimination. We're talking about Title VII. Yeah. Yeah. Title VII is part of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Title VII forbids, in the United States, uh, employers from discriminating on the basis of sex, also race, religion, and sex. So we are, of course, in the film looking primarily at sex discrimination against women in the film industry. And the film industry was in complete and utter illegal violation of Title VII. Um, Maria Geis, who is a co-producer on the film, she's also in the film as a speaker, 
she single-handedly took these horrific statistics down to the ACLU. The ACLU reviewed the statistics and they were like, oh my God, you're right. This is a slam dunk case of illegal sex discrimination. They went to the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, part of the federal government. And the federal government also was unable to say anything except yes, this is illegal sex discrimination. <laughs> because you have like 50-50 men and women coming out of film school, and then you have like this minuscule percentage of women actually working um, as directors in the, in the film industry. And so the EEOC actually went into secret, secret um, negotiations, settlement negotiations with the major studios in Hollywood in 2015. Um, and they were, I mean, to this day, we don't know exactly what happened in these settlement negotiations because they're unfortunately closed in secrecy. But what we do know is that the studios were threatened with millions and millions of dollars of fines if they would not start stepping up. So you started to see, you know, beginning in like 2016, 2017, you started to see a shift and we are seeing a, a, some, some positive shift in employment. And that was a direct result of, you know, this legal action that, and it was really initiated by Maria Geis. Maybe having a lawyer be the co-producer of the movie helps with getting that litigious zeal, which we That's all see right. in, in our artwork. You, you call this, uh, this, this camera angle visual rhetoric and another speaker calls it propaganda for patriarchy. <laughs> yeah, that's Joey Soloway. Yeah, that's, those those are great lines. But maybe you can break down the shot of a typical woman object, a typical man. You know, uh, men are also can also be objectified and treated like pieces of meat. But it's different in Hollywood. The formula is different, isn't it? Yes, what you have is you have um, male, sexy male actors. There's many, you know, everyone could, could name a few uh, easily, including Brad Pitt, you know, or even Harrison Ford, um, the, you know, the beloved actor from the original Blade Runner, who's now 80 years old. And a few days ago, um, there was a picture of him in Variety, and, and he looks 80, which is fine. You know, we all grow old. Um, he's 80. He looks 80. His face is hanging down. He's got, like, lines and creases all over his face. And he is announced with a picture of him looking 80, because he is 80, um, as the new hero in the Captain um, America movie some huge budget movie okay now just try to imagine a woman actress who is 80 who's never had a single facelift and her face is hanging down she has thick lines all over her face and her, her being announced as the big heroine in the next you know wonder woman movie or something you can't imagine it it's impossible it's outside of our range and that idea that men can be subjects, human subjects who have lives, who age, who have experiences, who are total human beings, who are also sexual human beings, their sexuality is sort of wrapped into the fact that they're human subjects. We have that on the one side. 
And on the other side, we have women who have a very narrow window of appearing attractive in the popular consciousness. And that window of attractiveness ends around early 30s, which is when you start getting women, actresses start getting, you know, massive plastic surgery and da, 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 so that you have a few women actresses who can keep going into their 50s, like someone like, let's say, Nicole Kidman, you know, and a few others. You, you look at them and they don't look 50, whatever, because they've, you know, they've had a lot of work done to keep themselves looking as if they are this eternally young, flawlessly beautiful female object. Now, what is an object? An object, you know, the easy way, because people sometimes get confused, like subject, object, I don't get it. Okay, what is an object? If you go back to an English sentence, we break this down in the movie, you know, the cat chases the mouse. The cat is a subject. He is chasing after the mouse. The mouse is an object. We're talking about the action of the cat towards the mouse. Man sees the woman. The man is looking and he sees the woman. She's the object. We see through the man's eyes. We feel what he feels. This person over here, who's the object, who is always, uh, you know, shot in very like soft light to make her sort of flawlessly, endlessly young. And she never had a human experience. She was always perfect you know, body parts panning up and down the body. Uh, you know, there is slow-mo sexualization. When you have slow-mo for women, it's always to sexualize them. They're like waving in the wind with their boobs flying around or men for slow-mo, it's action. So how are men shot in cinema, the sexy male stars? There's of course, sexy male stars. How are they shot? They're shot full body. They're never fragmented. And they're always in some form of action, action, action. Whenever they're put in the so-called object position where we're sort of looking at a man, he's always full body and he's action, action, action. So it undercuts that object position. Whereas with women, even if they're the protagonist of the story, even if they're the hero, even if they're the main character, they're gonna be shot in an objectifying way, which pushes them on a meta level, on a subconscious level into that more disempowered position. I was watching a video on Instagram. I don't know what source it came from. And they were women actors, I'm guessing in their 50s. Julia Louis-Dreyfus, I think was one. And they were toasting to the the end of, a, I okay. forget which one. The last fuckable day, right? That's it, exactly. Yeah, 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 that's, yeah. Exactly, that's right, that's exactly yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, so yeah. so that's, that's exactly what you're saying in the crudest yeah. possible and most direct possible way is what you, right. that's what you're saying. Well, what we're saying also is that this message, you know, last fuckable day, thir age 31 or whatever, or if you want to get older, you've got to, you know, do massive surgical intervention to make you appear so that you're still younger. This is conveyed through this method of shot design, which is very insidious, you know, it's insidious because when, when the average person walks into a movie, they're just following the story. You know, they're following the characters, they're following the story. They go, they go into this movie trance, you know, they buy a pot of um, a tub of popcorn 
And while they're watching, suddenly the all the popcorn disappears. They don't know how that happened, but they ate a whole tub of popcorn. They absorbed the whole movie. They know more or less the story of the movie, although they'll probably forget it 10 minutes later. But what they will not forget is this meta message that infiltrated their consciousness about what is a woman and what is a man and what is the value of each. And that is what ends up translating into these problems. And in fact, a lot of research has been shown that shows that consuming sexually objectifying media leads to higher rates of, I should say, higher acceptance of sexual harassment and assault on the on the part of women and higher um, amounts of sexual harassment and assault on, on the part of men who have viewed that kind of media. So, they, I mean, they've actually tracked it. Yeah. Some exploitation is actually done by women directors. And you point that out in your movie, talking about the movie Cuties, which was which was sickening. I don't I don't watch a lot of movies, but I saw this and I couldn't believe what I was watching. Yeah, it's very important to remember, as Bell Hook said, that patriarchy has no gender. That means that a system of male supremacy is not only supported by male bodies. There are a lot of men like you, Paul, who are on the side of, you know, a more equitable society. And there are a lot of women who are, even though they're hurt by this system, are in bed, so to speak, with the oppressive um, system of male supremacy. And it's it, so it is not surprising because this system has been taught, the system of shot design has taught in film schools. It's used in all the, almost all the so-called masterpieces of world cinema. So it's no surprise that um, female directors reproduce the same kind of cinematic language. We don't know, for example, in the case of Cuties, we don't know is was the woman director aware of what she was doing? Did she know that sexualization slow-mo is just like code for following the law of the father? So she was she made sure that her little 13-year-old girls were sexualization slow-mo shot, that we got close-ups on their crotches and all of that. They look, they look younger than 13. Or, or did she just like go along with her male DP who said, this is how we should shoot it because this is how we shoot it. Because yeah. we know the law. Those girls look younger than 13. I'll tell yeah, you. Yeah, you're right. They're probably eight. Yeah, I have a 10 year old and they look younger than her or her age. Mm -hmm. Some women directors of the past tried something different. Dorothy Arzner among them. Can you talk about female directors that stand out from history? Yeah, well, there are a number. And um, it's a, you know, I'm a filmmaker and I teach film. And nevertheless, I, until 2018, when the movie came out about Alice Guy Blachet, the life of the very first uh, woman director and the first woman, first person who ever created a narrative film in the history of cinema was a woman called Alice Guy Blachet in 1896. I didn't know it. My colleagues didn't know about it. Very few people, certainly no one in popular culture ever heard her name until this film came out in um, 2018 about her life. And then I were like, oh my God, how come we've never heard of her? So that's part of it that 
women who did do things differently or tried to do things differently were erased from film history. You don't learn about it in film school. I mean, now, literally the last few years, you know, we're starting to see a shift. So Alice Guy Blachey, 1896, very first um, narrative film made by a woman. Very first narrative film ever made, made by a woman. Think about it. How, you know, how many of your listeners have heard that name? And then you had um, the, the, quite a lot of women being very active in the silent era in Hollywood. But the minute that sound came in and with sound came higher amounts of money, capital, money came in and women were pushed out. So for 40 years, there were only two women uh, directors making work in Hollywood, Ida Lupino and Dorothy Arzner. And that's like, uh, you know, uh, they try, they did a lot of work and they did some great work, but you know, that's a, that's tragic. And then, you know, since the 60s, 70s, women have been pushing and not with very little success until this EEOC investigation. Thank you, Maria Geis. You say cinema is sorcery. Much cinema today seems to be black magic, but the question is, doesn't Hollywood just reflect the status of our culture right now? Um, you know, it's a bit of a chicken and the egg thing because, you know, Hollywood reflects the culture, but Hollywood also creates culture you know it's 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 really a circle we talk about this in the film so you know there's a it's hard to know you know who's feeding who it's um you know people say like well you know if you have a sexy woman in in a movie everyone's gonna run see it and pay money and it's all about money um, but I would say, like, I can tell you that when I've shown Brainwashed around the world, and I've shown it now quite a bit, you know, we started at Sundance, we went to the Berlinale, we've been, I've been in Israel at Dhaka Aviv and uh, Helsinki and all over, as well as <laughs> here in LA at the Lemley Theater. And we've been bombarded by audiences who are like, oh my God, I love your film, everyone has to see it. Now, what would happen if I had a million dollar advertising budget behind Brainwash? I bet it would be a massive hit, you know? Um, so it's, 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 you know, it's hard to parse it out. Like if this film had a huge advertising budget that was equal to the advertising budget of Blade Runner 2049, which film would be more popular? I would bet money that Brainwash would be more popular. You know, but you can't, you know, you can't compare it because films that go against the grain are going to be suppressed in all sorts of ways. Yeah, but they're also going to have evergreen status and people will be talking about it in 50 or 100 years, I think. And Thank you. Blade Runner, I don't think so. Thank you. Do the fundamentalist Christians who rail against the depravity of Hollywood have a grain of truth in their argument? Um, I don't know what they're... <laughs> I don't know what they're I mean. Are. They're saying they're they're saying that filth is basically what comes out of Hollywood. That Hollywood is depraved and sinful, and I don't know whatever words that, that would be used. Um, but you're saying, yeah. I mean, this is a Hollywood. This is a shot angle that you say is really the the epitome of lust. And if and if you talk about the sorcery of film, putting lust together with sorcery seems to me like black magic, and uh, it would it would seem to me they'd have a point. 
Well, I think that the 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 point that I'm trying to make, I am not anti-lust <laughs> and I'm not anti-sex and I'm, uh, you know, I'm a hippie kid. I grew up in Berkeley. My point is that the problem here is the pervasiveness of this one way of looking. So I say this in the movie, it's like, if we had, you know, equal opportunity, you know, if people of all different faiths and colors and sexes and trans people and everyone had equal access to the machinery of making a movie that would have, you know, huge amounts of advertising money behind it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We would have a lot of different points of view. We would have a lot of different films coming at us. And maybe, you know, some of them would be like the fragmented woman's body because that's what turns, you know, maybe someone on, but over here would be really different. It, that, would, that would be kind of like just part of the human experience. There are a lot of different people, a lot of different ways of seeing, a lot of different ways of feeling. The problem here is not that, you know, quote unquote, Hollywood is depraved the, the, or, or anti-lust. The problem is that there's been this one monolithic way of describing sexuality that consists of unequal power relations between men and women, that consists of women consistently being pushed into the object position, consistently being seen in this fragmented 2D way. The fact that it's so monolithic, the fact that it's one masterpiece after another, the fact that that's 96% of the films that we see, that's the problem. In other words, there's nothing inherently, inherently, um, good or bad about any given shot. The problem is that if you have a system that consistently disempowers and fragments certain people, namely 51% of the population, that's when you have a problem. So you're for the expansion of the bandwidth of the marketplace of ideas in Hollywood. Exactly. Yeah. You've talked about the finances a couple of times now. How does one get a movie like this finance today in Hollywood? Well, this movie was really, a direct, in my opinion, before 2015 with the EEOC action, and which then kind of was the undercurrent push getting the Me Too movement off the ground. Without those two things happening, I never would have gotten this movie financed. There is no way that anyone would have financed it. But coming out of the EEOC investigation and the Me Too on top of that, and me writing my article about how these things connect and having the world sort of ready to hear it that created an atmosphere where I was able to reach out to Tim Disney, who um, he recently stepped down, but he was the chairman of the board of trustees at California Institute of the Arts. And I pitched the idea to Tim and he was like, yes, let's do it. And Tim brought his two sisters on board, Abigail Disney, who's a well-known uh, film producer and his other sister, Susan Disney Lord. And the three of them, gave me a amount of money that was most almost all of the money that I needed to make the film. And the way that it, the finances was structured is there's something called the International Documentary Association, which is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that supports social issue films. 
So the Disney's were able to give money to the IDA and they took a tax deduction. And then that money came back out to the production and I was able to make the film. So this was not financed through, you know, brute capitalism. It was financed as a social issue movie through the IDA. But nevertheless, if it had been before 2015, no one would have financed it no matter what. Yeah. Talk to us about the role your inner life plays in your artwork. The films that I've made up to Brainwash are very different from Brainwash. My narrative films are a bit more on the sort of avant-garde side of the system. They're all very much from come from me, from my internal life, from my kind of my dream life. Um, they're, they're a bit on the mystical side and they're sort of combine a sense of dream worlds with definitely a political message, but not quite in such an overt way as Brainwashed. So that's all my films till now. Now, Brainwashed was created very purposely to reach a wider audience and to reach out to people who are film viewers, not only filmmakers, also filmmakers, but not only filmmakers. And so there was a a real attempt to create a movie that would be able to have a wide impact. That said, my inner life is a big part of the movie. And I myself as a filmmaker in the movie, I talk about my own journey and my own struggles as a filmmaker and as a woman being subjected to all of the things that the film is about. So it's very much uses, you might say, my own journey as a device to connect to the universal problems that we're discussing in the movie. Is that you floating above the bed in that scene portrayed by, <laughs> is it portrayed by your sister? Was it your sister? In the no, movie? that's not my no. sister. That's an actress called Marina Scheuf. Uh-huh. She's actually also a Subu member. Is that right? <laughs> but she got into Subu uh, through me. She wasn't a Subu member when when we made the film. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's not me. But it's based on a dream that I had. Yes. Yeah. And a nod to Tarkovsky in there yeah. as well. Yeah. How do you measure success for a film like this? That's a good question. That is a really good question. I. I think, well, the first thing we can say is we measure success by whether the film is invited to the so-called A-list film festivals. It has been invited to all the A-list film festivals. It premiered at Sundance, it went to Berlin, CPH Docs, Carlo Viveri, IFA. These are all considered kind of the top film festivals of, of the world. So the set and then the second way to judge the success is like, did you get a distribution deal? Well, yeah, we did. We got a distribution deal with Kino Lorber. Now Kino Lorber is an excellent art film distributor. They're not the big they're not the biggest distributor. You know, it's not HBO or Netflix who's getting behind the film and putting a million dollars into advertising. You could say that would be maybe you could say, well, that would be a higher level of quote unquote success. But I think that they were afraid of the film. It's, it's subversive. And so having um, a great distributor, that's 
a judgment, you know, let's judge success that way too. Then there's how do audiences respond? Well, so far we've had amazing audience responses. And in fact, the film was extended in both LA and New York City for a longer run because of wild popular demand. So that's, you know, another sign of success. And then there's the uh, sign of success of like, how is it critically received? Well, we have been gotten a lot of rave reviews. We have also been attacked. So, you know, is that a sign of success? Maybe that's a better sign, <laughs> you know, because the film is subversive and it's, you know, it's ruffling feathers among certain people. And um, those people are not necessarily all men. Let me leave it at that. Fair enough. We'll leave it right there. I have to tell you, I was stunned by the movie. Um, I I was sickened in parts of it, only because I think that I have I have bought into some of that, and I feel duped. I felt I felt duped, and uh, you helped awaken that in me, and I will forever be grateful. And I wish you gigantic success with this movie and with whatever you do after this. And I'm really grateful for your time today. Well, I I am so grateful at your great questions, your great understanding of what we're doing, and your great openness to to hear the message of the movie, because not everyone is open, and some people get very defensive. So thank you so, so much. Thanks for having me on your show. Cascadian Profit supporters include Diana Elser, a sponsorship dedicated to her parents whose practicality, humor, and love of family life reflected their experience in and love for the eastern Missouri breaks and western Ruby Valley Montana landscapes that define their childhoods. And Steinbrook Native Gallery, located near Pike Place Market in downtown Seattle, featuring fine art of the northwest coast from emerging and established artists. A link to their site at CascadianProfits.org. O-R-G. Cascadian Profits is a project of the Cascadia Poetics Lab in Seattle, Washington. Check us out online at cascadiapoeticslab.org.